Legal Faceoff on WGNRadio.com is brought to you by McCorkle Litigation Services, leaders in court reporting and legal technology. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome into another edition of Legal Face Off here on WGN. Kevin Wells sitting in for Joe Brand today. As always, joined by Rich Lankoff of Downey Lankoff and Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Our first guest today, Anthony Michael Kreese, a per- assistant law professor at Georgia State University, currently holds a courtesy appointment with the Department of Political Science. He joins us today to discuss the former president and an option he could have in pardoning himself. Welcome, Professor. Hi, it's, uh, it's good to be here as always. Yeah, the main uh, the main topic is, you know, whether Trump can pardon himself if he's elected. But before that, we've got breaking news coming out of Georgia and seems to be uh, every day. But the um, grand jury report was finally released, the full report, which is kind of unusual. Um, but in the you know short time you've had to evaluate it, what are your initial impressions about this uh, this grand jury report? Well, I think this the special purpose grand jurors uh, overwhelmingly saw a lot of criminality here in Georgia. Uh, there's a couple of different buckets where they were fairly unanimous. There were some uh, where they were a little less unanimous in terms of finding a national conspiracy to overthrow the election. Um, but I, I think that's uh, it was really surprising. And I think it was particularly surprising that they a majority of the jurors wanted to indict uh, or recommended indicting Senator Lindsey Graham. That was that was also kind of surprising. Also, really quickly, before we get into the pardon, um, what do you make of the news this week with the hearing about the you know trial date? I mean, given the number of witnesses involved in the evidence, it seems clear that the initial trial date is impossible to adhere to. Yeah, you agree? Yeah, there, there's no way that we're going to get 19 different defendants tried together in you know four months. I think is basically what the uh, the the prosecutor's office said, at least for their their uh, you know their part of the case. So. I think we're going to look at two buckets. There's going to be two trials or two co-defendants here in, in October with one bucket of, of case or one bucket, uh, and then another bucket of co-defendants probably in the spring or in the summertime next year. But we'll have to see how that exactly shakes out. So jumping into our pardon issue, which is also, fa- you know, any one of these issues would be the most fascinating topic in the history of the law. We've got Dozens and dozens of them, thanks to the ex-president. But in this case, you know, if he's elected president, it seems to be conventional wisdom right now that uh, the president, he would be president at the time, could pardon himself if he's convicted of a crime. But Georgia is kind of unique in that um, if he is convicted of a state crime, which is what we're talking about, the Fannie Willis prosecution, Georgia law does not allow a president to pardon himself. That would be subject to some different laws unique to Georgia. Can you explain that? Yeah. So in Georgia, we we have a board of pardons and parole that basically decides these these issues. Um, we don't let the governor do it. And part of that part of the reason is because there was a governor in the 1940s who was selling pardons. Uh, and so we took the, the pardon power away in the state constitution and gave it to this board. But as a general matter, under Georgia law, 
um, a person not only has to for, you know, fill their sentence out, um, but then they have to wait five years before they get a pardon. So uh, it's it's not an automatic thing. It's not a quick process. Um, it's not something that really allows somebody to avoid their sentence. Um, it's it's something that uh, you know it, it's it's a tough process. It's not um, you know we don't really liberally give out pardons here in Georgia. Well, Professor, tell us a little bit more about the political makeup of the pardon board and um, how that might influence their decision. Well, I, I think the part board is overwhelmingly conservative. Um, you know, they're appointed by by the governor, um, and, and it's certainly not a board that has historically been known to um, to freely and liberally give out um, you know pardons and things of that nature. Uh, you know, folks really have to demonstrate a a you know that they've earned them. Um, I, I personally think I wish we gave them out more liberally and that we were a little bit more lenient and showed more mercy. But that's certainly not what this board has historically done. Um, and I don't think that Donald Trump or anybody else who gets convicted potentially here in Fulton County will be an exception. Well, there's certainly been some discussion and uh, proposals to alter the law to allow the governor, in this case, Republican Governor Brian Kemp, to have the pardon, have the power pardon. How how, how likely do you think that is? That's absolutely never going to happen. And, and the reason for that is because uh, because it is a constitutional provision that vests that power in the Board of Pardons and Parole. It would require two-thirds of the General Assembly to agree, um, which would require Democrats to jump on board. So there would have to be some some really major incentives there, I think, uh, for, for Democrats to, to join that effort. But I think ultimately, Brian Kemp has shown... Um, at least to some extent, not not really, you know, in all ways, shapes and forms, but some uh, to some extent, a resistance to kind of letting Donald Trump uh, run roughshod over uh, the electoral process and you know just normal processes here in Georgia. I don't think Brian Kemp wants that responsibility either. So I suspect that there might be a few Republicans who want to give it to him. Um, but I think many of his allies in the legislature realize that's not a responsibility the governor wants. So, Professor, if Trump is elected but is not yet convicted, can he just simply order his DOJ to drop all charges? Yeah. So that's the big difference here between the DOJ cases in Washington, D.C. and in Florida and the state case here in Georgia, which is if Donald Trump is elected, um, you know, whether uh, in, no matter what happens in terms of whether he's convicted and pardons himself or whether um, he has not been tried yet, he can he can uh, do away with those charges in advance and essentially dismiss them and then pardon himself. So uh, Georgia really is probably the one place where he has the greatest degree of um, you know, legal jeopardy and the possibility of losing his liberty um, and, and in a way that he would have to answer to at some point. Now, I think, by the way, if he gets elected, if he were convicted somehow before the election, I doubt that'll happen in the timeline. Um, but if he were to be convicted in Georgia and and um, you know, and then elected, Georgia would have no option but to spring him loose um, and, and let him serve as president, I think. so. Um, but at the end of the day, he would probably have to come back and, and finish that sentence out. So uh, the federal cases are very different from the state cases in that sense. Professor, two last questions here. We have a couple more minutes. I want to uh, take advantage of, of your appearance here. Two questions. Number one, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the show, the grand jury report revealed that um, many other people, including Lindsey Graham, were possibly, you know, the subject of um, of indictment. And the, the grand jury declined or Fonnie Willis maybe declined. Um, you know, it's interesting because she's been criticized as overzealously prosecuting by bringing in all these defendants. It seems, though, now we know that perhaps she 
you know, streamlined the process and could have brought in a lot more um, defendants. Number one, number two, um, you know, we we know now this week that in the uh, the Mar-a-Lago case, it seems like the strategy to charge people below lower in the conspiracy and get them to flip has worked. Right, uh, the IT head of Mar-a-Lago has purportedly flipped and is ready to testify against his alleged co-conspirators. How likely do you think that'll happen in the Georgia case? Who's going to flip first among these 19 other defendants? So those are two large questions. I'll let you handle either one of them or both if you have time. Well, I I think it's interesting. So right now there's a removal hearing because Mark Meadows wants to take his case out of state court and bring it into federal court. And so there was an evidentiary hearing to basically determine whether or not Mark Meadows and in the conduct that he was engaged in here in Georgia was actually um, acting as a federal officer and therefore is entitled to removal. Um, there were a couple of attorneys who were called by the Fulton County DA's office as witnesses in that evidentiary hearing um, who were recommended for, uh, for for indictments by the special purpose grand jury. So that suggests to me that there, right, there are people who the, the who are cooperating with the DA's office who are otherwise uh, you know targeted by the special purpose grand jury or you know at least recommended by them to to have charges pursued. So that seems to be in the you know in the works. There are immunity deals which we know have been made with some of the fake electors. Um, so so I think that there is a real good possibility that that you know that there will be more of that to come and especially now where we have two trials here or two co-defendants who will be tried in October and November of this year um and and it looks pretty grim for them because I, I think that they're uh, at least one of them has has a pretty tough case against her and the other one is now yoked to her um in a way that he probably doesn't want to be so that might also you know spring some leverage um in in the prosecution's favor to flip and turn people into state's evidence. That's the assistant law professor at Georgia State, Anthony Michael Christ. Thank you for joining us today on this complex issue uh, discussing the former president. Uh, again, we thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Hope to talk again soon. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Our next stop here on Legal Faceoff on WGN is Casey Myers, author and professor of public relations and director of graduate studies at Virginia Tech. Casey, thanks so much for joining us today on Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, last week, Donald Trump made history as the first former president to have his mugshot taken when he surrendered to the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. 
Other than the fact that he's a former president having his mugshot taken, what else makes this mugshot different from other celebrity mugshots? Well, I think one of the things that makes it so different is that he's communicating a message in it politically, and that message is one of defiance. So if you think about political mugshots or just celebrity mugshots in general over the past 30 years, we've seen a lot of mugshots come out where the celebrity looks terrible. We've seen mugshots, uh, notably Tom DeLay's mugshot in the early 2000s, where he smiled. And that was very deliberate on his part because at the time they thought that Democrats would use that mugshot in negative campaign advertising. So he had a mugshot that looked more like just a congressional photo with his congressional pen, lapel pin on. But Trump's mugshot is something different. His shot shows a scowl looking at the camera in a, in a sort of disgusted way. And I think it's meant to convey contempt for the process, but also the idea that he's a fighter, that he's fighting these charges and that he has been wrongly indicted. Yeah, I mean, many have compared it uh, to the famous Winston Churchill pose of similar defiance. Um, how much do you think this was calculated? I mean, there's no question that Trump, if if nothing else, is a very skilled conveyor of his message, right? He's got lots of consumers who lap up everything he says as evidenced by, you know, his 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 election as president and the fact that he's now leading certainly the Republicans in the nomination process. So how much of this do you think was the result, this mugshot was the result of a strategy where he sat down with his advisors and they discussed, well, should we smile? Should we frown? Should we scowl? I mean, this had to have been rehearsed. Uh, I don't think he just went in. Although, on the other hand, you could also picture Trump not listening to anyone and just going up, going into uh, the jail with his own, you know, his own plan. Certainly either one of those scenarios is possible. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there wasn't a discussion. It wouldn't just surprise me if Trump decided this is what I'm going to do, because Trump is very media savvy and very aware of how his image is portrayed and the optics of something like this. The the bottom line, regardless of what the, the backstory is on how he planned, it was planned in uh, the fact that we we know that they would have had an awareness of the viral nature of the mugshot. We were even seeing deep fakes and simulated mugshots prior to this. Uh, and you could look on Instagram, you could look all over social, and you could see that kind of thing. But this is the real thing. And I think he knew that this is something that's going to be everywhere. So he's going to capitalize on that moment. And he certainly has capitalized on it in his campaign fundraising. Well, speaking of speaking of, you know, planning, um, it's interesting because, you know, these days, no one in the world just takes one picture, right? I mean, we're all used to taking selfies or giving your camera to someone and they take, you know, a dozen photos. You get to pick the best one. This is, this was his one shot. You don't get to, you know, right. edit your, or you don't get to edit your mugshot. You don't get to add filters, presumably. So to the extent that his consumer base enjoyed this photo and as Tina will get to, he's consumerizing it. He did a pretty good job on that one take. I would have to say for his purposes, it's been excellent because what he's been able to convey in that mugshot is so much more than what the the, the arrest was. It's a narrative. It's a political narrative of persecution. It's a political narrative of standing up to uh, the deep state and to the Democratic Party. And so I think he's able to convey that. But you're right. It was a one shot deal. There's no lighting. There's no, photo you know, sophisticated photographer there. This is not like a magazine cover, although it certainly has had the same or even greater impact. So, Professor, to Rich's point just now, um, this mugshot 
has not only making a political statement has gone viral, but it's become a focal point of merchandising for uh, former President Trump and his campaign. It's on T-shirts, it's on posters, coffee mugs, beer koozies, along with the slogan that he had gone um, to Instagram with once the mug shot was taken, that never surrender slogan. There's been a lot of chatter about this. Um, people debating whether or not he even has the legal right to take that mug shot and do what he's doing with it because he doesn't own rights to the mug shot. But from just a pure merchandising standpoint of this mug shot and what he's done with it beyond the narrative would you care to comment on on that aspect of it? Well, in terms of success, it's an unbridled success in merchandising because the last that I have looked on the the data, we had something like thirty five thousand plus t shirts sold with Trump's face on it, koozies, uh, posters. I've even seen things online showing posters that could be signed uh, by Trump. Uh, and, and so you're going to see a lot of this merchandise being used for political fundraising purposes. And that certainly has bared out. Fundraising has gone up uh, in August. The August numbers were over, uh, I think, close to, to 10 million almost the last time I checked. We don't know what September is going to be uh, because it's not, we're not going to get that data until the end of the month. But certainly the fundraising has kind of paced with a, the mugshot as being at an extremely important, pivotal point in uh Trump's fundraising and his ability to capitalize on that image. And I think you're going to see Trump capitalize on it and, and the merchandise. You're going to see other people capitalize on it and their merchandise. And I don't mean just political merchandise or political fundraising, but just vendors in general. You're going to see this image everywhere. It's going to become an iconic political image of the 2020s. Professor, your book, uh, which is, by the way, available right now on, on Amazon and wherever you purchase books, has got a great five-star review on Amazon. Uh, it's called Public Relations History, the Pre Theory, Practice, and Profession and Money in Politics. I'm wondering how your research relates in the area of public relations, relates to what we're seeing now with Trump, in particular, how he's using the legal issues he's having to uh, promote himself and his presidential campaign. How does this fall in line with past uses of public relations when it comes to, you know, uh, political figures or uh, celebrities or those in the legal profession? Well, I would say in, in a lot of ways, it's very typical of public relations is uh, ability to harness image and content to create attitudinal and behavioral change. So and good PR causes people to change their opinion or to take some action. And in Trump's uh, uh, world, that's going to be donating or motivating to motivating people to vote. And so you're going to see uh, there's an effective use of PR here. What is really unique about what Trump has done is he has been able to take a scandal and parlay that into a narrative that promotes him and has made him the the beyond doubt front one runner of the Republican uh, nominee uh, or front runner as a Republican nominee. So what he's been able to do is capitalize on something that most people can't capitalize on. Most people, this would be a career ender. But for him, it seems to be something that has really boosted him into kind of a stratospheric level, at, at least within his uh, circle of the Republican Party and his supporters. And, and just to that last point, you know, I mean, in some ways, it's perhaps the best use of free media 
in the history of campaigning. I mean, when you consider putting aside the fact that this is a picture of a, you know, someone charged with serious political crimes and likely to be convicted of, of one of them, you know, this picture has been seen by billions of people. I mean, is there anyone on the planet, you know, who hasn't really seen this mugshot at this point? When you consider the value of that from a PR perspective, from a political perspective, how much that would cost in actual campaign dollars? The value of that one shot and and the fact that that one shot is conveying so much, as you said, I mean, that's some of the greatest free media in history, right? Absolutely. You know, when we talk about earned media, that's the media that you don't pay for, the media that's put out there about yourself. Everybody tries to get earned media for themselves and a campaign. Their biggest expense is advertising. And so when you're fundraising, you're fundraising to get, you know, advertisements on television, get your name out there, get your image out there. Trump is a true master at getting earned media. And he started doing that through his tweets, which were, became news stories. He's done that through rallies that were then covered on television. And so he got a lot of publicity free of charge in 2016. He did that in 2020. And he's doing that now in 2023 with this mugshot. And I think what you're going to see is uh, this earned media, What it has a, an effect of both fundraising, but it allows him to use his money in other ways. So there's a there's a kind of a plus plus benefit to it and that you're able to not have to run as many ads because they're running the ads for you online and on Instagram and social media or wherever. But you're also freed up to fundraise heavily on the image and then use that money in other ways to turn out the vote. So I think it's an effective strategy for him. Certainly a fascinating angle to this with the former president. That's uh, Casey Myers, the director of graduate studies at the School of Communication for Virginia Tech. He's also an author and a professor of public relations. Thank you, Casey, for joining us today. Thank you. Andrew Luna joins us now. He's the executive director for decision support and institutional research. He has served in higher education for over 35 years. Andrew's here to talk about the lawsuit against Vassar College. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Andrew, last week, five female professors at Vassar filed a proposed class action lawsuit in federal court in New York, alleging that the school discriminates against female faculty by slow walking promotions, and paying them less than their male peers. The suit alleges, among other things, that the plaintiffs have tried to work with the school for more than a decade to address the pay disparity, but with no success. Tell us more about this lawsuit. Well, I don't know particulars about the lawsuit, um, with the exception of what I've read in the news, but essentially you have these five professors who are representing actually 35 other uh, uh, full professors, and that's key, full professors. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, and they are representing these 35 people who are current and former employees of the institution, I think going back to like 2015. Reason why full professor is important is oftentimes your professors are in rank. You have assistant professor, associate, and full. These are only full professors. So they have reached the highest rank. Um, so now you don't have to worry about having rank or anything, years of service in the mix, because basically they're all going to be about the same. Uh, they're claiming uh, being underpaid, um, um, underpromoted, and not being evaluated uh, fairly. I can't address that. Uh, what will happen 
is that, um, uh, you know, from 1977, uh, with the Hazelwood and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the courts have said you can use statistical models to not only uh, show your case, but actually prove discrimination. So what the plaintiffs will do is they will develop a statistical model to try to uh, support their case. Then the defense will come out more than likely with their statistical model to try to show their case. And then it'll be up to the courts to decide which uh, is the better or more substantial or more, um, uh, uh, well, just better model. Professor, the lawsuit alleges that the pay gap between males and females uh, ranges from about 7% to 14% over the last decade or so. And you said that what's also relevant is that these um, professors teach in different disciplines, different, you know, different areas of, of the university. Explain what that means and why do you think that phenomenon exists? Well, <clears throat> it's a free market economy. And uh, essentially people, uh, professors who are in accounting and other business fields and STEM related, science related fields are going to get paid more than English professors and art professors. Uh, it's a free market economy. Now, I know there are some organizations like AAUP, American Association of uh, University Professors, who have um, been an opponent to all professors being paid you know, equally, but that is tantamount to going to a grocery store and seeing that all items are priced the same. It's not going to happen. So um, that is one of the factors. I did a study back in, um, I think it was uh, 2007, uh, where I looked at uh, the whole system of Georgia, all the professors, there are 5,400 professors um, in the system of Georgia, and we ranked the disciplines by low, medium, and high. And what I found out was that the vast majority of uh uh, female professors were in low to medium paying disciplines. This is based on national salary averages by discipline and that the majority of men were in medium to higher paying disciplines. So that has, that has an effect, uh, uh, to it. Um, so does rank. So does years in service. All these things add, you know, to the model, but we don't have to worry about rank now. And, and in many cases, we don't have to worry about years of service because in order to get to a professor level, you have to have so many years of service. So, Andrew, you've extensively researched faculty pay and gender gaps. Um, tell us a little bit more about how prevalent these issues are. And during the course of your research, what are some of the more surprising findings that you've had over the years? Well, if you read the media, and I and I get it because when you're filing a lawsuit, you've got to come out with all, you know, guns blazing, pardon the pun. But, um, you know, you hear one side saying, oh, you know, we're being mistreated and, you know, this, that and the other. And it's all intentional and it's just, you know, systemic, you know, whatever. And then the other side saying it's not. Um, in essence, the courts have said that there are two kinds of discrimination, uh, disparate impact and treatment. In other words, is one intentional and is one not non-intentional. Um Intentional means I want this group to get paid less or I want this group to get paid more no matter what, because I just want that to happen. Unintentional is that there are certain circumstances that happen that cause certain groups of people to get paid less. What I have found in my research within higher education is that most discrimination issues are really going to be uh, through unintentional means. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain that. Uh, you have a bad budget year. And, uh, you know, low revenue, 
you're having to still hire faculty and you bring in, you know, you're wanting to uh, bring in the best faculty you can, but you're offering really low amount. And there's some faculty that will take that amount because they need a job and some won't. Uh, so that person that takes that job at a lower wage, oftentimes in higher education, when we get raises, it's only by percentage. So if you get a percentage raise and you start out low, that gap keeps increasing and keeps increasing. So it's what I have found, most of this is unintentional. Uh, now, I guess that was the most surprising because when I first started this out, I was thinking if you're going to have all these, you know, mean people over here and all these, you know, um, uh, victims over here. But it's not really that. It's a lot of things. Salary is really complicated and you can get caught up if you don't look at things often. But whether it's intentional or not, um, shouldn't universities, now that they're on notice for a while of this disparity, uh, take additional steps to remedy the situation? Again, understanding that it might not be their intent, but the actual effect is the same. Well, and actually, the courts have said that while there are those two differences, uh, the rulings uh, uh, tend to um, not have any difference. Uh, they are you're going to get punished no matter uh, if it's intentional or unintentional. So it behooves an institution to um, regularly check uh, salaries. You can do this through various salary models, like uh, things that I've developed. Um, oftentimes, uh, universities will. will um, will get people outside of their institution, companies outside of their institution to come and do salary evaluations. And um, uh, and by doing that and then making remedies where you see there needs to be remedies. Uh, and here again, in this particular case, the Vassar case, it looks like that they did run into uh, uh, various models and they were trying to make some adjustments, but um, evidently those adjustments not were not where the plaintiffs believed that they should be. So, Andrew, last question here on legal face-off. In studies on gender pay and promotion gaps, there's at least some um, research that seems to indicate that these issues are more prevalent in academia than they are in industry. Have you found that to be the case? And what do you think can be done beyond what we've discussed to address these issues on a higher level? Well, I don't. I've never done any salary study outside of higher education. So I, I'm not really, other than case law, what I've read when I've done my own studies in higher ed, I do know that it, it exists. I think the two main reasons it does exist in higher education is because of what one of the reasons I just said, um, there's a lot of unintentional um, um disparity that goes on, whether you're getting hired low or uh, departments get merged together and, and things get kind of pushed aside and you don't realize that, that people's salaries are, are, are going down. Another thing, I, I think because uh, professors, especially full professors, they're tenured. They can, um, I think they can voice their opinion more without fear of retribution. I think there are some people in the private workforce that they were to claim discrimination, they may not find a job the next day. But if you're a tenured professor, you're, you're pretty well protected. So I, I feel like they they think that they can come out and uh, and I'm not I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that that is something that you know it protects them to be able to come out and make these um, you know assertions. That's Doctor Andrew. Oh, oh, sorry. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. My apologies. I thought you were finished. No, go ahead finish up. No, way to prevent, again, is just um, 
come up with a model that uh, what I have done in the past, I've come up with models, whether they be salary um, uh, um, uh, discrepancy or salary uh, compression, come up with something that you and the faculty Senate, we usually work with the Senate, can agree on and um, run this um, every so often at a former institution. I did it like every two years and and just have a, uh, an administration that's committed to making sure that uh, these disparities are, are addressed. And that's how you prevent this. That's Dr. Andrew Luna. He's the executive director for Decision Support and Institutional Research at Austin P. State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. Dr. Luna, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey & Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Now it's time for the legal grab bag segment here on Legal Faceoff on WGN, here to sort through a variety of topics. Alex Almazan, the managing partner and founder of Almazan Law. He's represented plaintiffs and defendants in a variety of legal matters. And Sanford Williams, lecturer in law at UCLA School of Law. He's also a partner at the FCC as a special advisor and deputy managing director. Gentlemen, thank you for joining the show today. Thanks for having, thanks for having us. Guys, thanks for being here. Uh, Sanford, thanks for being a repeat guest. Jumping right into our uh, Trump watch, which leads off every legal grab bag because inevitably there's some breaking legal news. There's no shortage this week, Tina. I mean, literally today, as we just discussed, we're getting uh, news from the Georgia uh, grand jury. That report's been released. And the news there is that, you know, everyone thought that Fonnie Willis was, you know, overly broad and bringing in every defendant under the sun and this trial would last forever, which it might. But we are learning that the grand jury actually intended or wanted to charge others, uh, the most prominent being Lindsey Graham. And uh, that was scaled back. So perhaps the Georgia prosecution is more conservative, not more liberal than we thought. But yesterday we saw Peter Navarro, who's an ex-member of the Trump administration, who, you know, very notably uh, refused to comply with a subpoena to turn over evidence to the January 6th committee. And they charged him with obstruction of Congress. And yesterday he was actually convicted. Uh, he has, of course, said he will appeal. He said that this is an unprecedented prosecution in the history of our country because he is standing in the shoes of the president and the president, you know, has the privilege of not abiding by that. We'll see if that argument holds forth. I don't think it will. You know, there's no evidence that Trump uh, advised him 
to not comply with the order of Congress, which carries the same legal weight as a regular subpoena. It is notable, though, that, you know, to, to be fair, that um, Eric Holder, who was the attorney general during the Obama administration, was similarly charged with uh, obstruction of Congress and failing to abide by a subpoena there, wasn't charged criminally. So that will be used both legally and from a PR perspective. So you have an example of, I hate to use this term, the weaponization of the DOJ, the weaponization of the government and, you know, unfair prosecution. But that should be noted. But there's lots of differences in this case, uh, understanding Peter Navarro's context in the rest of the alleged criminal enterprise involving Trump. The second thing I want to point out, which is really interesting, and again, like we talked about earlier, any one of these pieces of news in a regular world before Trump would be the most groundbreaking event in the history of our you know, country's uh, litigation. But this is like just an afterthought. But, you know, we learned in the Mar-a-Lago case that, you know, they got someone to flip. Um, a major, uh, you know, a major alleged co-conspirator, the head of the IT uh, department at Mar-a-Lago, who allegedly was involved in erasing the tapes that showed some of the destruction of the documents, has now agreed purportedly to flip and testify against his former boss and his former colleagues at Mar-a-Lago, which is a major, major uh, development. You know, I think among all the cases, Tina, and most experts agree that the Mar-a-Lago case is the biggest slam dunk in the world. That's the shortest, easiest to understand. The most evidence exists out there to convict Trump of, you know, not just um, failing to comply with the, uh, you know, demand to turn over evidence, but actually engaged in the proactive destruction of that evidence. So that seems to be the most open and shut case already without this guy. With this guy testifying, it should be a home run. And it's an example, as we've talked about extensively, of a basic rule of prosecution, which is you charge everyone and you get someone at the lower end of the timeline, at the lower part of the triangle, to flip Flip. and testify against someone on the other end of the conspiracy, in this case, possibly Trump. So Jack Smith who's a special counsel in the Mar-a-Lago case, um, has done a good job, apparently, with that strategy here, Tina. So big developments here in Trump world the last couple of days. Well, we could spend hours and days talking about all this. And I know we have like three minutes before we have to move on to the next story. But just a couple of observations. I mean, in keeping with the conversation we had earlier about the Trump mugshot and the narrative that he's spinning Around that, um, you know, all of the this litigation is very interesting, particularly for us lawyers. But ultimately, um, you know, Trump is a very smart guy who knows how to take even what some would call bad press and change it into good press. So and to a certain extent, with the timing being, I think, the most critical thing with respect to these different litigations and how the timing lines up with the election. But putting that aside, um, he's a master at taking what could be viewed as numerous setbacks in all these litigations and making them into victories. And again, this is all against the backdrop, too, of what the Democrats are doing and gearing up for the election. And Nancy Pelosi just announced that she's running again. And I think that, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of folks out there wondering why. And so, you know, all of this is a very multidimensional thing, right, Rich? And so you've got the Republicans doing what the Republicans are doing, the Democrats doing what the Democrats are doing. And Trump is doing his best to take what is, you know, he's making lemonade out of lemons. And so 
you know, it's, it's all very interesting. Yeah, I mean, great news that we've got another, you know, 80 year old plus uh, politician announcing their election campaign, which is awesome. Alex, you know, uh, again, it's a tried and true formula that I think people are underestimating in the various Trump prosecutions that someone will flip. In this case, it's one of the major people, the, yep. the IT guy. In the Georgia case, there's 19 others. Someone's going to flip. Reality sets in that I'm going to be facing a good portion of my life in jail. We just saw the uh, the insurrection guy get 22 years. That's a long time. So people are going to flip. And once someone flips, it's going to happen. I think uh, there's going to be a domino effect. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to jump in there. So thanks again for having me, Tina. Good to see you. Um, I will tell you it is. uh, So he's got three. Right. So you got New York, you got Georgia and you got uh, and you've got Florida. Right. My home state. So and in each one of the New York ones, probably the weakest one of the three that probably shouldn't even have been brought. But in when you're talking about it's exactly what what you said. It's exactly what's going to happen. People are going to start flipping because the, the idea of spending any time in prison is not something that anybody wants to do. You avoid it at all costs. Even even going back to your Holder comment about earlier, uh, Steve Bannon, a few years ago, had the same issue, and he was found in contempt. He's still fighting. He was only given four months in jail. Uh, he hasn't had to serve him yet because they're still appealing. So you're just seeing, I'll just kind of end with this, you're just seeing what I think is a little bit of tone-deaf reality with these politicians, whether it be Nancy Pelosi jumping back into the ring or the reality that Trump can say and do whatever he wants at this point in time. And all he's doing is taking his 33%, making it like 40% that is immovable. Um, so it's just it's going to continue to happen. So until people flip, until he gets some conviction somewhere, you're going to continue to keep seeing him playing the same game over and over again. Sanford, Peter Navarro going to see actual jail time? Um. It's a lucky mate. When you have a subpoena for Congress and you ignore it, I mean, you go to jail. That's what usually happens. Um, but one thing I want to mention that you mentioned, Rich, um, which really gets me each time um, when I think about this case, we are so desensitized to what's going on. If this happened two, three, four years ago, this would be the biggest cases ever. And I worry that folks are so desensitized that as we kind of spiral down this road, that we don't pay attention to the actual things that are alleged, you know. Because assuming they're correct, I mean, those are like the worst things that could be arguably ever happened, having people ahead of our democracy trying to subvert it. Uh, So um, I think it's an important point people often don't listen to. And I'm glad you mentioned that point. And I agree with what Alex said. And clear your schedule, folks, because the Georgia trial is going to be televised. It's going to last a year, two years, maybe. I mean, if you think you're stressed out over what you're not watching right now, that's on your you know Netflix list. We're going to be watching every second of this trial for the next couple of years of our lives. So stay tuned. Yeah. Must watch television for sure. Well, yeah. From one criminal case to another here uh, wrapped up in March, Alex Murdoch was sentenced to life in prison, but appears there could be a new wrinkle in the story here, guys. Yeah, Kevin. So just when we thought that, you know, after talking about this trial um, a lot on legal face-off, and just when we thought that it was going to go quiet, at least for a little while, it looks like Murdoch and his lawyers have filed a motion for a new trial, alleging, among other things, that the clerk of the court during the murder trial, Rebecca Hill, was um, had been doing some jury tampering. Um, And they claim, among other things, that she warned jurors about defense testimony, that she had met privately with a jury for a person and actually invented a story about a Facebook post that had gotten a juror removed. Um, The prosecutors, um, you know, in this case 
were successful in their in their case. This was a trial involving murders of Murdoch's wife and son. And back in March, the um, verdict came down. Now, Murdoch's lawyers, in the context of all these misdeeds, there are just so many of them that they've mentioned. And in addition to the ones that I just talked about, they actually go into pretty granular detail about some of these. And apparently the um, the clerk of the court had actually said to jurors at the beginning of the case, you all are going to hear things that will throw you all off. Don't let um, the defense distract you or mislead you. Um, she also allegedly told jurors that they shouldn't be fooled by the defense's evidence. Um, I mean, there's just a litany of things that um, that she allegedly did. And so, Rich, it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously, when you are sentenced the way that Murdoch was was sentenced and just watching this whole trial and knowing what we knew about him before the trial started, this is not surprising at all. It's just going to be interesting to see where it goes. I mean, the craziest, these are crazy, you know, wild allegations. If they're true, there's no question the guy should get a retrial, right? I mean, we just talked about Navarro. The Navarro jury was out for four hours. It was like the you know, one of the quickest deliberations ever. It was open and shut. The Murdoch jurors were out three hours. Imagine that trial lasted forever and only took them three hours. Well, now, allegedly, if you believe the complaint, the clerk was denying them smoke breaks, right? Said you can't smoke until you reach a verdict. She said that if you deliberate uh, past 11 p.m., you're on your own. You got to stay in a hotel and pay for it yourself. And also, she said this shouldn't take you very long. Well, I'm a juror. I'm like, yeah, let's get through this. I don't want to pay for a hotel. I mean, it's nuts. And to think that this went on with this high-profile murder is nuts. Because speaking of, like, you know, you know, being glued to it. We were all glued to this trial. I hate to think that we have to go through it again, but <laughs> however you feel you to watch it again, you have yeah. to watch it again. I mean, you Between have to. this and Trump, what are we going to do? Right. right. You know, I mean, the, the crazy part, Rich, is the woman wrote a book. Yes. And, and that that's that's the part like we've all been through either trials of our own or we're watching them on television. Right. Like I went to go see both of the prosecutors when I was in law school after OJ, when they each wrote a book and I went and watched both of them talk while I was in law school. So woman wrote a book and I think it was the book itself that actually started to make the jurors feel uncomfortable. And it was kind of like this woman's going on a book tour. Right. We're figuring out. And the sixth amendment in this country, people, you know, people, everybody knows about the right to a fair trial, but the sixth amendment also includes the right to an impartial jury. It's actually in the constitution. Well, it's it's not good, the greatest part, Alex, that you raise and, and, and Sam forget in on this, like, not only does she write a book, you know what the title of the book is? Behind the Doors of Justice. <laughs> She's basically saying that she went into the jury room and talked to them with that title. I mean, come on. Yeah, and it's so important because the case, I mean, is so heinous. I mean, killing yeah. your wife and your child, I mean, it's horrible. But we have Constitution Sixth Amendment for a reason. And if these things that are alleged are true, then you're right. We need to get a new trial. But it's, it's, so, it's, it's so messed up looking at it. I mean, because it's such a horrible crime. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's it's terrible for the victims, of course, to have to go through this again if that's the case, and colossal you know expense to the taxpayers of uh, of South Carolina. So very unfortunate, if if true. Yeah, yeah. seems like a pyrrhic victory too, right? Because it's going to end up with the same result, probably. Well, I don't pay for Twitter. Um, I don't know if any of you guys do, but another celebrity is kind of proving that Twitter can be pretty expensive here. Um, Alec Baldwin back in the news. 
Yeah, another LFO, another Alec Baldwin lawsuit. This guy can't seem to catch a break. This time it's a defamation lawsuit um, with allegations of intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, The family that's suing him was actually just given another opportunity to get their $25 million lawsuit that they filed against him to stick because earlier this week, um, Judge Ramos in Manhattan dismissed the lawsuit Um, But in what some would call a generous move, invited the plaintiffs to refile it to correct deficiencies and they would have to refile it by next week. So what happened here is the plaintiffs claimed that Alec Baldwin subjected members of their family, it's the McCollum family, to online threats and harassment after he posted and commented on a photo shared online by one of the sisters of the family who had been in Washington during the insurrection. Baldwin apparently called her an insurrectionist and a rioter. And she claims that it's not true, that she left before the craziness started and that the FBI actually cleared her after an investigation. Well, apparently what Baldwin shared was specific enough that people were actually able to identify her and her family which ended up spiraling into a lot of people reaching out to her and her family saying nasty things, et cetera, et cetera. Well, listeners of Legal Face Off know that we've talked about defamation a lot on this show. And what was alleged in this complaint does not rise to the level of defamation. And the judge came out and said as much, but he did invite the plaintiffs to come back and reallege defamation properly. So, I guarantee you, Rich, we're going to be seeing an amended complaint next week. I mean, listen, if you look at the picture, it's a picture that that he discussed. It's a picture of this woman during the insurrection with the Washington Monument behind her wearing a hat that says Make America Great Again. I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily, you know, uh, a follower of Alec Baldwin for a lot of things, but I don't think it's beyond the First Amendment protections to call her out on that. Now. What people do with that beyond that is a whole other question. I mean, that's not his responsibility. If anything, that's, you know, social media's responsibility. But, you know, there's trolls out there that are going to find you regardless of whether, you know, you you call them out. So his point was that, you know, I I I, I paid your family, you know, uh, this generous sum to honor your brother. I didn't know you were an insurrectionist. So I don't think it's, you know, outside the First Amendment protections, nor did the judge apparently. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's crazy. I think it's crazy the judge c- continues to give a roadmap for this alleged defamation law. So I think it's nuts. But Sanford, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with you. Great points. And triggered something in my other job. Uh, you mentioned suing the social media platform. Section 230, you can't do that. Right. Um, so that's something to consider. You know, if things and it was, let's say, a little bit worse, um, should Google or Twitter or you know Facebook, any of those platforms, you know, be liable? Uh, but to get back to your point of defamation, I think you both, you and Tina, are both correct. I mean, they don't have the requisite uh, standard for uh, showing prima facie defamation. So I'm not sure why the judge encouraged them reviling, but. Listen, man, where we all, when we deal with defamation cases, right, I, I deal with them in my office on both sides. We've defended them and been on the other side. Truth is the absolute defense. I mean, you're going to deny that somebody wearing a MAGA hat in Washington, D.C. on January 6th was called a rioter. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where I, I will say what does come of this, by the way, 
when you hear stories like this, doesn't it make you just kind of ease off on whatever social media you're individually using? I feel like that's really the lesson here for all of us. Like that's why I'm off Facebook and Twitter. I, I used to Facebook and fight with people all the time. I feel like I need to get off some of those things because I don't believe in this situation is going to be found to have been guilty. I think it's a fourth attempt already, Rich. You said a, a couple of times the roadmap is this is a fourth attempt they're giving these people. Um, and at the end of the day, I think what you force in a situation like this is for somebody like Baldwin, um, like what if Paltrow just did with the her skiing accident, it takes people to have to take a position be like, you know what, I'm going to spend a million dollars in legal fees just to show you that you can't, as opposed to taking the lawsuit and giving you a couple hundred grand and leave me alone. Um, so I'm glad to see at least he's fighting back. He's not just, you know, giving in and, and writing a small check and something to get out of the way. Let me do it real quick, Alex. You mentioned that makes you want to kind of pull back. I live with some kids, people who are 20s and talk to a lot of teenagers, they're all in. So, you know, even though I think your point is correct, I think that's part of the issue, you know, especially some certain totally points, agree. you know. Can't, yeah, yeah, can't yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. In this case, you know, Alec is not 20, is my right. point. Um, right. I think when you get to a certain age that we're at, I have 13 and 15-year-old kids, I know everything they're doing. Uh, but yes, to your point, I think you just get to a point where you're like, you know what, ease off a little. Alec Baldwin, certainly not the only actor making headlines these days. Also talking Kevin Costner and his divorce that appears to be getting messier and messier. Kevin Costner already uh, is the proud owner from his prior marriage, Tina, of one of the most expensive divorce settlements in Hollywood history. He's off to a stellar start with this one. Um, We've covered before the dispute he had with his, you know, uh, soon to be ex-wife, Christine Baumgartner, over their property, you know, uh, she wouldn't allegedly leave their $145 million estate in California where they lived for, for quite a while and raised a couple of kids. She says that, um, she did not uh, mean to accept this, uh, settlement and get her to move out. He said she stayed well past, uh, the time that she was supposed to per the prenup. Well, fast forward to the current dispute involving custody, which is getting a lot of attention. Um, and how much custody is not so much, but child support. Uh, that's the current dispute that they were in court about this past week. Um, so she's asking for, let's see, $175,000, not a year, Tina, but, um, but a month. Um, uh, and well, actually, to be accurate, she wanted initially 248,000. Uh, the judge initially said it should be 129,000. She then asked for an increase to 175. So they're going back and forth, but it's exorbitant amounts of money, right? I mean, uh, but in California, you know, there is lots of support for the idea that when you lived a certain lifestyle, and in most states actually, but California is a little more pronounced, when you're used to, and most importantly, most relevantly, when your children are used to a certain lifestyle, then the law recognizes that they ought to continue that lifestyle. No matter how, from the outside world, exorbitant it might be. And the logic is that, you know, the kids shouldn't suffer a change in lifestyle. If they were used to, in this case, flying private jets to Hawaii on vacation, um, you know, having private school, all their extracurricular activities and sports, the, the, the complaint references, they should enjoy that going forward, which you understand. But, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month. And that's that. Those are expensive trips. That's expensive, uh, you know, extracurricular activities by any standard. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and I would say that in many ways, people would say that Kevin Costner did it all right going in before he got married, having a prenup and so forth. And this is just one of those situations where he's a victim of his own success, right? Because we wouldn't even be having this conversation if he wasn't as successful as he is. And so I understand the notion to a certain extent, at least, of not wanting the kids to pay the price for the divorce. Um, and my guess is that at a certain level, given Kevin Costner's fame and wealth, that a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, if it's for child support, isn't all that much. But I think it's a bit ridiculous when we start getting into the conversation of what he owes her personally in terms of, you know, just like if it's separated from the kids, the kids are old, getting older. At some point, the kids are going to be going off to college. And I think that's where things need to to change rich. And also like the place she bought was ridiculously, op, you know, opulent. And I don't think would have been necessary for the kids to have a similar lifestyle to what they had with when they were married. Um, I mean, just from what I saw, it looks like the place she got was very opulent and very expensive and probably not necessary. 40,000 bucks a month for the new place. Um, and to your earlier point, Alex, I mean, What's the point of a prenup? The prenup was supposed to resolve the issue for $1.45 million. It seems like every time there's a celebrity divorce, always fighting it goes out the window. So what's the point of the prenup? It's all, you know, it's funny. It's, it's always fighting it, right? So in this, in this case, and this is actually the perfect, and I think Sanford, you'll probably agree. It's a perfect example because it kind of checks all the points. You don't have to have $145 million estate to look at this and relate to it. Because here's a guy. I had a bunch of money, had probably the most expensive Hollywood divorce in history. So then he gets round two and you're like, all right, we have to figure it out, right? I'm, I'm married to the same woman I've been married to for 17 years. I don't have a prior divorce. But if she left me tomorrow, I think I would have some lessons to learn second time around, like going in with a prenup. When my wife married me, I couldn't rub two nickels together. So I think now you look into the, what's, cur what's currently happening. Of course, now I, I do get this, right? And this is the part that when you're you know, talking about desensitizing things or putting some perspective on it, if you're going on vacation with dad to like Lake Como next to Clooney's house. But then when you're going on vacation with mom, you're at the motel six in like Samford, Florida. I can understand that the kids rationale for like, well, I'm going to love dad more because dad takes me to Italy. There is some reality of a tipping point between Italy and the motel six that, that the court has to find, right? Because the prenup usually comes at a time where there are no children. How many are you going to have? Is the divorce going to happen while the kids are underage? If the kids are 19, 20 years old, don't matter as much. So I think that reality and their kids, from what I understand, I think all three of them or two of them are teenagers. So I think that's that's what it is. What he needed to do was probably just they both needed to hold on for about five more years until they were older. But, yeah, I think the prenup is at the end of the day saves. And I think there were some situations that helped, like she had to be out, I think, within a month and certain things that I think the courts have held to. But they're always going to tackle them. They're always going to find loopholes in them because the prenup was done today for something 15 years from now is going to be totally different. But Sanford, speaking of, uh, you know, um, the trips that Alex mentioned, that's, it, it's funny that you said that because, uh, and by the way, the kids are yeah, 12, 14 and 15. It's funny that you say that because she wants one of her arguments is that we should continue to be taking able to take these trips, lavish trips to, you know, incredible places on a private jet. Well, in July, she took such a trip to Hawaii with guess who? Kevin Costner's best friend. <laughs> so she wants Costner. Her ex-husband, <laughs> you pay for a trip with her new guy who happens to be caught. I mean, come on. Please. Well, I mean, 
Alex is right about the prenup. The prenup should cover it. But think about it. I mean, I've been married for 35 years. I'd be kind of salty, you know, but my wife kind of just left me. So I may ask for if she you know, had the money, you know, pay for my trips with my new person. So, I mean, I kind of get and, where she's coming from. At the end of the day, though, I mean, the kids are should be taken care of and have the same standard of life with both parents. But I, I kind of understand where she's coming from. You know, Sanford, I hope your wife doesn't see that part of this segment. Oh, that's okay. We're stuck together after all these years. So. <laughs> A little bit uh, story, a little bit closer to home here. A Chicago Bears rookie, Javon Dexter, is suing a company in Florida after an NIL deal uh, appeared to have something in there that he did not think was in there when he signed his professional contract with the NFL team here in Chicago. So what's going on with that story, guys? Yeah, so Kevin, um, Dexter, as, as you mentioned, he sued this investment group It was a name, image, and likeness deal that he signed while he was at the University of Florida. And this lawsuit alleges that the contract illegally sought a cut of his professional earnings and had not been flagged to school officials. So this fight is with the Big League Advance Fund. It's in Florida federal court. Um, he's alleging that the agreement violates Florida's name, image, and likeness and athlete agency laws. Um, and according to the complaint, um, the contract provided for the fund to pay Dexter about $450,000 in exchange for the right to strike marketing deals on his behalf, which is not all that different from how these deals usually go. But apparently the deal also allegedly gave the fund a 15% cut of Dexter's pre-taxed NFL earnings for the next 25 years, which would effectively cover his entire professional football career. And it's that provision that's really front and center in the lawsuit. And the lawsuit asserts that Florida's name, image, and likeness rules bar these types of deals. Um, especially when they reach beyond um, the signatory's time as a student athlete. Um, Rich, we've covered a lot of NIL type of issues here on Legal Faceoff. This is a really interesting one, especially with the Bears overlay. Well, you know, a couple of things before we get to Alex, who is a double gator, mostly the re- right. I think that's why you picked this story. The reason we added the story was for you, Alex, but a couple of things don't feel right about this story, my friends. Number one, like, this guy was the second round pick for the Bears. I think it was the 53rd overall pick. And he's alleging, and I couldn't find any evidence of this, that he was paid a 436000 or the contract was going to pay him $436,000. Like, that's a major NIL deal. Like, that's a Caleb Williams deal. That's not a Javon Dexter deal. I mean, it's just not. Like, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Alex would tell us if he was a big name in Florida. You know, certainly he was one of the better, better players, but that's a lot of money to throw at, at this guy. I don't, I don't buy that. Um, I do know for a fact, and you know, one of the one of the side issues of the NIL deals is that the law, the NCAA, did not allow for advisors to help these young men and women to deal with these deals. They just said, yeah, go out and work out yourself without actually giving them any guidance and allowing attorneys, for example, to help them, which sucks. I mean, these are major amounts of money. I mean, Sanford's in, in LA, your, your rivals, USC, you know, Caleb Williams, by the end of his tenure at USC, will set records for NAL money. In fact, many are thinking he's not going to come out early because he can make more money at USC, maybe winning one or two more Heismans than in the NFL. 
But that being said, I don't know. I don't I I don't buy uh this lawsuit necessarily, but Alex, weigh in on this one. Man, bringing a gator into it. So uh, I'm actually like you guys, and I've heard it before on your show. I, the NIL stuff is near and dear to me. Not only am I in Miami, where the king, um, covered in mud most of the time, but the king of NIL across the country, John Ruiz, is right in my backyard with the University of Miami. I'm sure you probably have either heard of him or covered him if you're doing NIL stuff. Uh, so this was filed up in the Northern District. So a couple things. Florida like many states, but Florida, after the NIL was a couple of years ago now, they enacted, we have a state law in Florida um, that uh, has been around now for, for a couple of years. And that law, specifically the Florida um, Intercollegiate Act that specifically deals with this, there's two problems. One is that the duration of the contract of the representation of the individual cannot extend beyond their participation in a collegiate athletic program. So I think that's going to be the, one of the first ones. And then there's an actual warning, right? Like we all get sometimes on things that you sign. And one of them requires you to notify your athletic director within 72 hours of executing the NIL. So I think that's one of the other positions they didn't notify the AD at the University of Florida. And then the third thing that I'll tell you is very similar. I had a client um, before, this was before me, but they were a foreign athlete from Canada. And there was a very famous litigation up in Canada that she was involved with, unfortunately, with her own father, where her father had essentially started an LLC and took investments from a bunch of us to help fund all of her tennis. And in exchange, gave the LLC a percentage of her future professional winnings if she ever got there. And that was, they had to end up suing each other. It was a mess. But this is very similar. You can't take somebody who's a kid, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, and then give them some money and then take away a percentage of something they're going to earn in the future. So I, I think this gets thrown out. I think, and then on top of that, I don't believe that the company that signed the deal was actually a licensed agent in the state of Florida, which is required to do to represent an athlete. So for a variety of reasons, it's going to fall apart. Sanford, good, great analysis, Alex. Sanford. Perfect analysis. I'll, I'll, I'll just add that. Um, it's so unfortunate that these kids can finally make money and then people kind of frame them in this way. I mean, Folks who are giving money to these NIL deals are doing it for the glory of their schools. I mean, if I had the kind of cash I might do so for UCLA and for UVA and Cornell, the schools I went to, maybe not Cornell, because, you know, those kids probably um, aren't folks that invest in NIL because they don't have the same professional career earning potentials. But anyway, uh, folks who give the money are interested in their collegiate performance. So it's kind of backwards, like Alex mentioned, to have them then be able to kind of prey upon them and take their money when they succeed later, later down the road uh, with the Bears or anywhere else in life. And Sam, for me, add one last thing. But and this all college football, 80, 90 percent of these kids come from low income homes. You strike a check for half a million dollars. Right. They're taking it and they're not care what that says or signing. Yeah, I, do. I mean, I take that now, you know, so I <laughs> so would I. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, certainly probably not the last uh, NIL case you guys are going to hear. That's definitely going to be a lot of those on the horizon here as that kind of gets unfolded into college football. Uh, what's going on with Sam Bankman freed FTX founder in jail right now says he's uh, subsisting on bread and water, according to his lawyer. Now he's waiting for his trial in a uh, Manhattan um, or in the, in the correction center in Brooklyn, waiting for his Manhattan federal court trial where he uh, pled not guilty to seven criminal charges, um, alleging basically they defrauded people to the tune of billions uh, but the news this week, and we'll, we'll have to cover this one fairly quick because we're running out of time, is that uh, his lawyer filed a motion, Sanford, uh, alleging that he's being mistreated because he can't get a vegan diet in jail. I mean, man, talk about, you know, violation of constitutional rights and cruel, unusual punishment. This poor guy who allegedly defrauded billions, you know, uh, lots of people to the tune of billions, can't get a nice quinoa salad in jail. 
Yeah, well, personally, I feel that I'm pescatarian, so I kind of have a little bit of sympathy for that. Um, I think there should be some accommodations made, at least to accommodate him to a certain extent. Now, if he's asking for a certain type of expensive quinoa that only Kevin Costner eats, then that's different. But, you know, they should make some accommodations for him. All right, Alex, you're a you're a fan of uh, vegan meals. Oh, buddy, I wish, man. Not everybody is, looks as stunning as you. Uh, I, my connection to FTX is only that it used to be the Miami Heat Arena was the FTX Arena, and they took it off. And from what I remember for this, is I do not. I get fat shamed at home by my wife and my kids for the twenty pounds I need to lose. Um, that man ain't fooling anybody with a vegan diet. Um, I used to remember the pictures of him, and I thought, how is this guy sitting next to the most powerful people in the world in like shorts and a t-shirt? Um, you know, Joe Rogan has a famous take where he says, I would never give my money to anybody that isn't up at four in the morning and working out, working hard and looking great. So there's a million ways you can go with this. But uh, I think at the end of the day, just take your bread and water and, and just don't commit a crime. Just another reason, Kevin, why uh, uh, Bankman Free is going to get his ass kicked repeatedly in jail. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Doesn't sound fun for him. Well, last thing here, um, Joe Jonas of the Jonas Brothers. And Sophie Turner, most notably from Game of Thrones, the two are no longer Hollywood couple, no longer. What's going on here? Yeah, Kevin. So um, earlier this week, after four years of marriage, Joe Jonas uh, has filed the papers seeking a divorce from Sophie Turner. Um, you know, and it's only a few days after certain media outlets, including TMZ, first reported that they were having marital issues. Um, earlier this week, TMZ actually reported that the tipping point for this decision was attributable to something that Joe saw on a ring camera involving Sophie, but the details of what he purportedly discovered have not been shared. So there's been a lot of debate about why these two are getting divorced and a lot of sparring about who's the party animal versus who's the person who likes to stay at home. Um, one thing for sure is that Joe, after filing for divorce, um, has reportedly asked for joint custody of their two kids. Um, the two released a joint statement over Instagram um, with the narrative that we often see that it's been a wonderful run, um, but they've made a mutual decision to amicably end their marriage and that they're hopeful that people will be respectful of their privacy as they're trying to figure things out. Um, but in any event, some insiders say that they've been at a crossroads for a while, and so they're not all that surprised. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening here. I mean, there's a confidential prenup in place, as there often is. But as we just talked about with Kevin Costner, it's going to be interesting to see if this is contested at all or if they're actually going to keep it amicable, Rich. I mean, amicable dissolution, you know, conscious uncoupling, whatever, blah, 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 whatever Hollywood words you use. This is a story, in my opinion, from for our show about evidence, right? That ring camera. Now everything is okay. They're talking about, you know, uh, amicably separating. That ring camera, whatever it revealed, and many uh, are speculating that revealed that she was cheating on him, is evidence. And, you know, speaking like in the Kevin Costner case, there's lots of evidence uh, being used in, in, in that situation. While we understand that, you know, California, as of many states, are, are no-fault divorce uh, states, whatever's on that ring camera might be very, very compelling evidence to uh, support one of their one of their situations and one of them one of them asking for lots of money. So Sanford, uh, be careful what you say these days, because everything is caught on some camera somewhere. 
Yeah, it's messed up. And I mentioned, just in case my wife does watch, it's my beautiful wife, Dr. Anastasia Williams, <laughs> for 35 years. Uh, you know, yeah. divorce is painful. It's hard. I mean, here in Hollywood, where we are, anywhere else. Uh, and it's just sad that they're going through this. Um, it's interesting, the ring camera aspect of it. But it's interesting, My our daughter, um, one of our daughters, Nia Cece, who's a singer, um, we talk about Joe Jonas all the time because she loves music. And the Jonas issue, the costume issue, the Baldwin issue makes me think of a song. I mean, a rap song, Mace, Puff Daddy, uh, Notorious B.I.G., More Money, More Problems. That's totally. By the way, and this is, did you pick everything today uh, having to do with some connection to Florida? Because they filed suit in Florida and they have a place in Miami. These days, everybody does. Uh, leave some of them leaving your hometown, Rich. I mean, you know, it's no longer as it's cold. You know, we had Ken Griffin, all his people down here now too. So they, uh, they, so we, we, we got um, uh, this guy filing, and he hired Tiger's lawyer. So they're about two hours north of where I am. A guy named Tom Sasser. Um, guy keeps totally under the radar. Um, you know, notice from he handles high profile. Uh, I think he did Jeff Gordon. He had Tiger, and if I remember correctly, it was probably like a decade ago. I think she walked away with like seven hundred fifty million, if I remember correctly. But uh, these two have a prenup, and they're young, and they signed something a few years ago. I think this one probably goes away very quickly. All right, we like to end every show with learning a little bit more about our guests. This week, we talked a lot about Kevin Costner. Let's go around the horn and tell us. Your favorite Kevin Costner movie of all time. Alex, we'll start with you. I know you've got many. You're a big fan of, you know, Waterworld, for example. So putting Waterworld aside, favorite Kevin Costner movie. Um, that is, I mean, is anybody, I mean, this is, aren't you a sports guy? Yes. Right. I mean, isn't the, isn't the end of the, isn't that, uh, isn't that Field of Dreams? I mean, I, they, there's, he's done a bit. Waterworld, I think is probably the worst. No, Field the of Dreams, man. Right Field, of, Field of Dreams, man. There's not even a close, I don't care what it is. There's no close second. Yeah. Good That's one. The, one of the greatest movies of all time. Well, you can't. Here's the rule: you can't repeat it. So, Sanford, besides hey. Field of Dreams, okay. what is your next favorite Costner movie of all time? I'm a huge sports nut, but I'm also a romantic. I watch the Hallmark Channel with my daughter, so it is what it is. I say the Bodyguard. That, that's Bodyguard. Just me. I love that's music, romance. Whitney Houston can't beat it. All right, Kevin. Solid choice. I'm pretty sure I answered this question the last time I was. Yeah, uh, I think what? that we've answered. This. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Did we really? I I'm not sure. I it, it might have been a different. Um, I mean, Field of Dreams is number one, but I won't repeat it. Uh, let's go Draft Day. Draft Day, another just great Ooh. movie, iconic. Love it. Yeah, that's good. Underrated uh, Draft Day. Uh, Tina, favorite for the, for a second time. Favorite yeah, Field of Dreams. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. I love Field of Dreams. I, and he's he was in the Untouchables also, right? So he was great in that too. But Alex said Field of Dreams. You're violating the most basic rule of our <laughs> like, yeah, you know what? Bull Durham. Throw it out there. Bull right, Durham. Right. Right. said that. I, I gotta throw that out there. That's a classic. All right. Well, you said the Untouchables. That was gonna be mine, you know. Uh you wanna catch Capone? I'll show you how to catch Capone. But I love uh, <laughs> uh a deep cut in the Kevin Costner. Uh, IMDb pages, No Way Out, early movie, uh, great thriller, one of the great twist endings of all time. I won't spoil it for Kevin Wells because I know you're going to watch it, but go watch. Yeah, I haven't no seen Way it. Out. Great scene uh, with uh, uh, Sean Young, uh, actress from back in the day, in the back of a limo around Washington. So No Way Out is my my choice among the many great Kevin Costner movies. Awesome. So with this Joe Jonas story too, Rich, weren't you at the Jonas Brothers concert here in Chicago? Recently? Please say yes. Please say yes. I I wish. Please, I, I, please. Oh, I swear, I thought I saw a picture of you. Please, yes. I'm, I'm a huge Joe Bros fan. There's no question about it. Um, but I was. It's been a fun uh, show. I was somewhere else. Did you go to that? 
I did not. No, I heard it from my apartment in Lincoln Park, but I did not. Uh, they're loud. You could definitely hear them from a couple miles away, but I did not go. I'm not a big Jonas Brothers guy, but they got yeah. some good tunes. Sanford, quickly, I know you've got a a a, a former LFO guest nearby. Do you want to? you want to bring her on camera? Uh, Nia. Nia. I think she's in the kitchen. I have to run and get her. So. All right. Well, tell her that we're going to have her on next time, and uh, next time she'll play us out like she did last time. That'd be great. Yeah, and for my, I will add really quickly. I'm a big sports nut, really. Soccer, basketball, lacrosse, anything. But at the end of the day, you know, sports can keep you warm at night, and romance can. So that's the bodyguard for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, Sanford. Jeez, you really do think your wife? I think he really does think his wife is going to watch this. Hey, he probably will. So. I think that's what's happening. So that's what, Alex, you know, you and I go way back. Just remember, I will always love you, my friend. <laughs> that's perfect send off, buddy. I know it's genuine, too. I love you, too, man. Well, this was quite a nice end to the legal grab bag segment here on Legal Face Off. Just wanted to send a thanks to Alex Almazan, the managing partner at Founder. Uh, founder of Almazan Law and Sanford Williams, guest of the show, uh, lecturer at law at UCLA School of Law and also a partner at the FCC as a special advisor and deputy managing director there. Gentlemen, thanks so much for hopping on this segment. This has been a blast. That's awesome. Thanks for having Thank us. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.